Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer. I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. And you know, my friends, for the past almost one year, I have been presenting five podcasts a week. And I find myself on occasion trying to decide what I'm going to preach about. And I found myself this week saying, I have nothing to talk about. So I decided to take myself up on that. I have nothing to talk about. And that is exactly what I'm going to do. In this episode, I want to talk about nothing. And the best place I know of to begin is in the beginning. Turn to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. The Bible starts with these words. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. This is a remarkable verse. The only way the story of all things could have truly begun. It teaches the incredible truth of creation out of nothing. The Hebrew writer wrote in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. This verse simply states the fact that God made the world from nothing. The things which are now seen, all of those things that make up the world, were not made of things that then existed, for there was nothing material that pre-existed. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is truly the only logical way to account for creation. And I want to mention very quickly that this verse refutes all of men's false philosophies and theories concerning the origin of them and the meaning of the world. One, it refutes atheism because the universe was created by God. Secondly, it refutes pantheism because God is transcendent to that which he created. Thirdly, it refutes polytheism because one God created all things. In the fourth place, it refutes materialism because matter had a beginning. Fifth, it defeats dualism because God is, was alone when he created. Sixth, it refutes humanism because God and not man is the ultimate reality. And seventh, it refutes evolutionism because God created all things. Now let's talk about that remarkable word, created. The word is bara, and it is always used only of the work of God. Only God can create. By that I mean only God can call into existence that which had no existence in any form. God is the one who calls into being that which does not exist. Romans chapter 4 and verse 17. Man can make things or form things, but we cannot create things in the sense of Bera. God also can make and form things and do so more effectively and quickly than man can. But the work of creation is uniquely a work of God. 
The act of making and forming consists of organizing already existing materials into more complex things, whereas the act of creation is that of speaking into existence something whose materials had no previous existence except in the mind and power of God. In Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9, we find the following. In verse 6, David wrote, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. In verse 9, we find, For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Can you see the importance of nothing? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, Paul wrote the following. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. If we brought nothing of a material nature into this world, and it is obvious that we can carry nothing out, then isn't it pretty clear that our primary purpose on earth cannot be a quest for material things? Jesus spoke directly to this issue in Luke chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. Let's look at what he said. Then he said to them, Beware, and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. Solomon was a man who lived his life in the lap of luxury, a man who had all the physical pleasures and comforts that were available to a man at his time. He wrote, Whatever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not from my heart any joy. Yet despite all of the material possessions that he came to enjoy, he reached the conclusion that physical comforts and pleasures are not the reason man is here. In fact, he boiled it all down to this. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Man's life is really a preparation for what comes after, and we come into this life equipped for that purpose. Fearing God and keeping his commandments is what that preparation is all about, and I'm telling you, man is losing sight of that fact. So when they die, what do they have? Nothing. Not a single dime can be taken with us, not one. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just as sure as you are listening, if we spend our lives seeking after riches, 
allowing that pursuit to interfere with our service to God. If we spend our lives always wanting more, always trying to keep up with our neighbors when it comes to physical luxuries, and doing so at the expense of our service to God, we are going to go out of this world just like we came into it, with nothing. But there will be one major difference. When we came into this world, we were saved. And then we had our whole life to live in service of God and to be pleasing to Him. But if we spend our whole life building up treasures on earth instead of in heaven, when it comes time for us to depart, we won't even have that. We come into this life with nothing physical, and we leave with nothing physical. If a person will just think about that, it helps to put things in their proper perspective. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and read the first three verses. Paul wrote, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Paul certainly makes it clear, doesn't he, that going through the motions just isn't going to get it done. Paul teaches that it is what motivates us, that undergirds our actions. That's what gives meaning and significance to the things that we do. In the context, Paul was writing of the superiority of love to the miraculous spiritual gifts. And he made the point that none of the spiritual gifts are of any benefit to the individual without love. He makes the point that great acts of benevolence and faith are of no benefit to the one doing them without love. We can feed the poor, shelter the homeless, and clothe the naked. But if we do not have love, we are nothing. I remember when Jesus was asked in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 33, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He responded with, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself made the foundation love. Without it, we are nothing. We were in the book of Matthew. Let's stay there and turn to chapter 5 and look at verse 13. The King James translates that verse as follows. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith the child it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and be trodden under the foot of men. I want to talk a little bit about that salt. The first thing to mention is that salt suggested purity. To the Romans, salt was the purest of all substances. So to his hearers, what Jesus was saying was obvious. His followers were to be an example to all in purity. It is the same thing that Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12 when he wrote, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. In addition, salt preserves. It keeps things from spoiling and becoming corrupt. In the ancient world, it was the most common of preservatives. So they understood that a follower of Jesus must preserve himself from corruption, as well as having a preserving effect upon those he or she comes in contact with. 
Salt also seasons. Being a follower of Christ is to life what salt is to food. Without life, Christ has no flavor. Being a believer makes life palatable, not only for the believer himself, but for all we come in contact with. It is the responsibility of the Christian to exercise that influence, and salt promotes thirst. A follower of Jesus must live in such a way as to stimulate in others a thirst for the Lord Jesus. But what happens when salt loses its properties and can no longer perform its functions? Well, then it is good for nothing, except to be thrown out and trodden underfoot. There is a little aspect here that sometimes goes unnoticed. They did not throw it in the fields because worthless salt could still ruin the fertility of a field. It needed to be thrown in the streets where folks would walk on it and it would do no harm. Well, when a Christian quits living as a Christian and is no longer an example in purity, no longer is a preserving element with all he or she comes in contact with, no longer shows that life in any circumstance is palatable with Jesus, or no longer causes anyone to want what they have, then that Christian is good for nothing. But you know what? That unfaithful Christian does damage as he or she goes out and lives in an ungodly way. All who know what they used to be are made to have less respect for God and his word. And all of those who don't know what they used to be lose the opportunity to be influenced for good and taught the truth when they come in contact with them. A unfaithful Christian doesn't hurt just themselves. They hurt everyone they come in contact with. Being an unfaithful Christian is nothing for good. Good for nothing. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1 and we'll read verse 19. The King James translates that verse as, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. To put that simply, man's wisdom minus God's equals nothing. Look down as Paul continued and wrote, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is such an important lesson to be learned. So much emphasis today is placed upon secular education, and it is important. Everyone should get as much education as they can, but they've got to keep that education in its proper perspective. It is so distressing to see young people who have, have been raised respecting God's word throughout their younger years, getting into college and suddenly rejecting it in favor of human wisdom and knowledge that has not stood the test of time and is nowhere near as well attested to. It is so upsetting to hear a young person espouse the wonders of science, forgetting that it was God who created it all anyway. Frankly, I must tell you that I have come into contact with so many preachers over the years with degrees from Bible seminaries who didn't know enough about God's Word to preach from it, much less defend it. 
I think the statement of Solomon from Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10 is certainly applicable at this point. He wrote, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Let's go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul was making the point that in circumstances that he found himself, whatever those circumstances might have been, he acted in a manner well becoming a minister of the Lord. This was true in all manner of conditions and in all sorts of persecutions, whether they were forced upon him, such as stripes, imprisonments, and tumults, or if they were voluntary, such as labors and such among the churches. Then in verse 10, Paul wrote, As sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet having many riches, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Think about that. Paul wrote about having nothing, being without worldly possessions. He wrote about being poor, living in poverty. But at the same time, he wrote of possessing all things. That is having things in their proper perspective. What we possess as a child of God, money can't buy. And it doesn't make any difference if we are rich or poor materially. As a Christian, we possess all things. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verses 36 through 37. He said, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The truth is, if a man gains the whole world materially and loses his soul, he has gained nothing. I hope this talk about nothing has done you some good, and I appreciate your listening. Thank you.